Hello and welcome to Say That Again Slowly, the Cambridge Festival podcast where students interview the experts who have contributed to the festival. We try to pair up students and researchers from very different disciplines to bring things back to basics. There are no stupid questions here. This year's theme is power in all its forms, from nuclear energy to medieval saints, from the history of money to the biology of extraordinary animals. I'm Amelia and I'm a second year undergraduate studying English and today I'm interviewing Dr Leah Nicola uh, who will be presenting a talk as part of the festival titled The Last Pagan Emperor Understanding Julian the Apostate on Monday the 20th of March from 1.15pm to 2pm. Hello Leah, Um, could you please begin by introducing yourself and what you're going to be talking about at the festival? Of course. So um, my name is uh, Leah. I'm an assistant professor in uh, um, in classics, uh, and my specialty is late antique history, late antique to early Byzantine. Um, and, and on Monday, I will be talking about this quite unique figure in the history of um, the Roman Empire, that is Emperor Julian, the so-called apostate. And I will be trying to to put him in context, so to speak. For those listeners who may not have heard of of Julian, could you maybe sketch us like just a brief biography and like what, for example, is an apostate? Of course. So um, apostate is a word meaning uh, in Greek something like the betrayer or the traitor. Um, and this refers to the, the, the striking fact that marks Julian's life. Um, he is a Roman emperor, but he is born in a, in a dynasty, the dynasty of Emperor Constantine, in which the emperors have already converted to Christianity. So Julian is raised as a Christian, um, the, the, the first dynasty of the Roman Empire, which this happens. And then at some point in his life, he decides to go back uh, to the traditional uh, Greco-Roman religion. So he leaves Christianity and he goes back to um, to the religion of the past. And for this reason, his, uh, his detractors um, started to call him very early on an apostate, so uh, a, a betrayer. Um, and Julian uh, is somebody who lived actually a very short life because he died uh, um, when he was probably 32, perhaps 33, we don't know it exactly. Um, but after, um, I mean, he has impressed uh, um, so much, uh, he has had so much impact on the history of Rome, because even though his rule was very short, he actively tried to make so both to reform a traditional uh, uh, Greco-Roman religion and to make it the official religion of the empire once again. So this uh, elicited uh, multiple responses and uh, made of him uh, a, a, a towering but also controversial figure among his contemporaries. Thank you, that's really interesting. Um, why did you first get interested in studying um, Julian? What drew you to him? Uh, I I was actually interested in uh, um, um, in in other topics related to the to to the Greco-Roman world, but then I just happened to read uh, a historical novel, um, which is called Julian, is by Gore Vidal, the famous uh, the famous American novelist, uh, and it just it blew me away because it's a it's a really a magnificent account of Julian's life. And I have to say also a very accurate one because I re I reread it um, after uh, after graduating, and it just made me realize how much research Gore Vidal put into his reconstruction of uh, of Julian's life. So 
yeah, after reading that, I thought, why we're not giving to Julian a go? And uh, I've been working on him for a few years now. Oh, it's really interesting to hear like a piece of literature sparking you to then like take an academic um, dive into a figure. Yeah. Um, so Julian, is, he's known mainly for being like the last pagan ruler of the Roman Empire. And I was wondering if you could maybe explain a little bit about how Julian would have understood paganism. Does it differ from our understanding today? Because I think it's quite a difficult concept, maybe. It's an extremely difficult concept. We could even say it is both an umbrella concept because it um, brings together a variety of religious allegiances. Um, but it's also, we could say it is an external denomination and a derogatory title, in a sense. Because what we need to understand is that um, the, the Greeks and the Romans did not describe the religious allegiance in the way in which we might want to do uh, in, in modernity, in the sense that there was no way to say, uh, you know, uh, in, in the way today somebody would say, I'm a Jew, I'm a Christian, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Buddhist. Uh, um, th- 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 there would be no way to say, you know, I have an allegiance uh, to, the, to, to the Roman gods because they didn't feel the necessity to, to do so. So what happens is that at some point when Christianity begins to take over and, uh, and does so by defining itself in opposition to other religions, so um, it, 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 it is, in a sense, Christianity in the, um, in the Roman Empire that begins to give a label to those who do not belong to, and pagan becomes one of the possible labels to describe those who, uh, who aren't Christians. There is also others, like in the, in the Greek half of the Roman Empire, you would simply describe a pagan as a Hellenist or a Hellene, actually. Uh, so somebody who, who was in, very much invested in Greek culture, we would say. Um, but the thing is that um, for, um, for uh, paganism could describe very different ways to, to believe in the gods. And for, um, for Julian, actually, um, his, his religion is, is basically a unity with uh, Greek philosophy. So um, he he was um, extremely devoted to a sort of uh, uh, mystical uh, um, mystical evolution of Platonic thinking that we usually refer to as Neoplatonism. And Neoplatonism was at the same time, according to our modern categories, a religion and a philosophy. So that was his side of. Uh, no, thank you. That was really useful just to hear it explained. Um, I guess what I found quite interesting when I was doing a little bit of reading before this is, and you've kind of touched on it already, the fact that he's the nephew of Constantine, who's the first sort of Christian emperor. Um, and you were talking about how he is schooled in Christian religious doctrine, and then he ends up rejecting it and rejecting it quite fervently. And I was just interested, do we know why he became so opposed to Christianity? Yes, this is, um, I mean, it is uh, actually the topic of my talk and uh, what I, I, I try to... <laughs> to do a spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a spoiler alert, yeah. But it's it's actually so what I try to to argue in um, in my in my research, um, that there is a, there is a very close uh, uh, correlation between his interest in philosophy and uh, his reaction against Christianity. So what we need to understand is that uh, in the moment in which Constantine becomes the first uh, Christian emperor, this is actually, in, in many respects, a sort of subversive gesture. 
because of the importance that traditional culture and traditional religion had a court. So we could even speak of, um, you know, if you want to draw on, uh, on, the, on the category of the cultural capital, um, when we think of the Roman Empire at this time, it is this huge territory in which a sort of trans-regional trans elite is especially invested in uh, thinking of themselves. I mean, what they, they, they find the unity in, uh, in traditional culture. So if you are an emperor who um, buys into a new religion, a religion that doesn't doesn't stem from the traditional culture, you know that you are treading uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, you're, you're treading on shady ground, if that's an expression, if I'm not using a mixed metaphor here. Um, but Constantine knows it. And also his, his sons, we can see if we study, as I try to do in my research, um, if we study that propaganda, the way they spoke of themselves, we see that they were constantly putting an effort in saying that they were Christian, but um, they were uh, very connected with uh, Greco-Roman culture. And in particular, which is the crucial point, uh, their Christianity gave them a better understanding of traditional culture, a better intellectual control. So this is for Julian what is extremely problematic. The idea that, um, I mean, now I'm slightly simplifying things, but the idea that this external system might simultaneously want to claim superior insight into uh, the, uh, the, the culture of Greece and Rome, and at the same time uh, might be dismissive of it uh, Insofar as the point then for Constantine and his successors is that of saying, uh, yes, we control this culture, but um, the gods that are part of this culture are not what we want. We want a, 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 a different divinity. We want to um, say that the meaning embedded in this culture actually points to a different type of universal truth, cosmic truth. So as a philosopher, Julian, finds this a sort of um, um, inconsistent argument or the deployment of uh, um, even, you know, intellectual tools, uh, metaphysics developed uh, within uh, a Greek culture system in the Platonic tradition um, in the service of something that is, um, this is, is external to it. And my point, more or less, is that if we want to use a sort of uh, um, anachronistic category, uh, but my point is that Julian is, in a sense, accusing Christianity of cultural appropriation. So the idea that uh, it draws on instruments that are not its own, and then it denies that it's using those instruments. I mean, that is really interesting, because I feel like throughout the history of Christianity, that's something that I've, like consistently flagged up when, I mean, when you look like, at the moment we've been doing um, like sort of Victorian literature and we've been looking at like sort of, you know, like missionaries going abroad and spreading Christianity. And it's the same sort of fears that they're sort of erasing the culture, but they're using the sort of cultural practices to spread Christianity, but at the same time denying it. So it's really interesting to think about that as a debate that was happening so, so, so long ago. Um, we could we could say two things though uh i guess so as a follow-up the first is that maybe to some extent what julian doesn't see is the degree of um you know inter uh, interconnect interconnectedness 
um, syncretism, uh, dialogue, exchange. That uh, so I, I, I guess that a form of uh, mutual influence were sort of inevitable. And maybe Julian himself is a bit blind to the way in which Christianity influences his thinking. But then what you were saying about the missionaries, I think in a sense there is the eternal problem of uh, anchoring. Um, what you are bringing uh, into a new environment, uh, into a different environment, uh, and, and and one of the ways through which culture is anchored uh, is also that of, uh, um, I mean, trying to connect it to things that may uh, people are familiar with that make them feel comfortable. So I think it's part of it. So after he becomes emperor, he obviously starts on this, I don't know, would you call it a, a religious reformation, this idea that he's going to try and limit the power of Christianity and I was wondering could you tell us a little bit more about the sort of changes that he implements in order to try and achieve this goal? Um, of course and I, I I would say that here the point of power is is central. The premise is that actually Julian doesn't get the chance to do much because as I was saying <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he becomes the sole emperor in November and then of the year 360 March 363, he's dead. <laughs> it's not much that he manages to do. Um, but why do they say that power is central? Because um, I think Julian sees something that prompts him to, to pursue his religious reform. I, I think what he sees is the beginning of the separation between state and church and also sort of a, um, power struggle between them. Because in the moment in which Constantine attaches the church to the empire, he also, in a sense, gives up. Uh, he gives away what had been, uh, uh, throughout Roman history, the absolute control on the side of the emperor of um, you know the religious life. The emperor was Pontifex Maximus. He was the highest, uh, um, the highest religious office, and so emperors until Constantine had a, a complete uh, uh, control of the the religious life of Rome. With Constantine, this is not possible anymore. Even though he tries to maintain this control, he presides over religious councils like the famous one of Nicaea. Um, but the thing is that he doesn't have what Christian theologians call apostolic authority. So he doesn't have the sort of uh, legitimacy to do so that is theorized as coming directly from the apostles to the bishops. Um, uh, and I, I, I think that Julian reforms are reflective of this um, uh, division, this first uh, division between uh, uh, political power and religious power, which brings to um, which brings many tensions between the emperor and the bishops already early on. We should we should be saying this. So Julian sees this tension, um, and his reform could be described as an attempt at hypercentralization. So he is again in uh, absolute control. Um, he appoints his priests personally, as we can see from his letters. He communicates with them. He tells them how they should behave. And he also tells them, which is equally important, what they should be reading. So Julian writes a sort of literary ca canon um, for uh, his priests, the priests of his reformed cult, because he thinks it is of absolute importance that the, the priests keep up Greek culture, that's what we were saying before, like uh, culture is very much embedded in his understanding of religion, so they must read especially Plato and a series of other uh, other things from, you know, uh, the Greek past. Um, yes, and they must do philosophy. 
so he also writes religious hymns uh, to various gods, to 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 Helios, to the sun god, or to the mother of the gods, which is Sibylia, a sort of syncretistic divinity. Um, and these hymns um, are profoundly philosophical because that's how he understands that religious should be done. That's very interesting. Yeah, just to say, no, just as a wrap up, he dies and, and none of this remains, of course. Yeah, because one of the things that I came across, and I might be wrong here, that he sort of establishes this idea of like a pagan welfare system in the, the pagan temples that this idea that the Christian church was using charitable activities to spread the faith. And I thought that was really interesting because, um, again, it's something like uh, you see in in England after like the um, dissolution of the monasteries. Um, but like a lot of people after that, they struggled because they were getting support from those from those monasteries. But it was also like a, another way in which Christianity was spreading its power. And I was wondering if you could tell us any more about this. I thought that was a really interesting idea. Uh, that's, that's that's a crucial point, uh, and I have to say it's also a very controversial one, because the problem here is that uh, I mean you you are right. Julian writes this, or we assume that he writes it in the sense that this the, the, this this plan to organize charitable charitable activities in uh, in competition with the the Christians is something that we read in one of Julian's surviving letters, uh, letter eighty four uh, Bideskimo. Um, and the problem is whether this letter is authentic or not. The scholarship is extremely divided on this point, and I do personally believe that it's a forgery, uh, or at least that if there is a sort of um, uh, Julianic text, uh, it was heavily um, re say, rewritten by some later Christian, because. It, if you think about it, um, it is it is a strange text um, in which Julian formally um, says bad things about Christians because it's how he's supposed to uh, to speak. Right, he's supposed to criticize them, but the substance of the letter, in fact, pays a compliment to the Christians because it says that they are those who are. Um, organizing chari charitable activities and they're doing it so much that in the letter it is written they're actually even taking care of the pagans not just of the Christians so it is uh, I mean the, uh, the the document has other problems it's not just that the, the, there's a number of problems in that text um, but it says essentially sort of uh, um, invoices a complex of inferiority and you can imagine that is something that would have pleased very much any Christian reading that Julian the Apostate actually was trying to keep to keep up with the Christians, but couldn't quite. Uh, so I do think it's not authentic. That's really interesting. Um, I'm because I think it's really interesting list uh, talking about these actions and how we can interpret them, because. Um, I'm wondering, is there any way that Julian could be seen as a defender of religious freedom, of religious tolerance, or is it always this motivation of limiting the power of Christianity? It's um, This is another crucial and, and, and controversial point, today, or maybe complex, because there uh, may be something that we should state um, at first is the question of whether religious tolerance was actually a value at all in antiquity in the same way as it has then become in, in modernity. Um, but uh, we need to think that um, actually 
the 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 the, the assertion of uh, the, the 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 Roman power uh, was something that was built in uh, the image of of Roman emperors. The idea you have all these coins in which, uh, um, so um, there is not necessarily. Uh, in, in in the Roman world, the sense of of the value of accommodating of giving space, and we do find appeals to religious tolerance. So it is to some extent a concept, but usually it comes from oppressed minorities. So we have early Christian writers saying you should be you should not be forcing religion on us, um, but they are also saying it because what. But then they add afterwards is you shouldn't because we are right. <laughs> Once we take over, you will see that we are right. So it's always, always extremely competitive. Um, so how does Julia fit in this uh, very different uh, framework? Uh, Julian uh, does not persecute, uh, does not um, enforce any religious persecution. Uh, um, but even though there is a Christian tradition that creates stories of uh, Julianic martyrs, but these are later fictional stories that really want to drive home the point that he was bad, and so he was persecuting. They're, they're not historical. Um, but what Julian does is to actively try to refute Christianity and to sort of discourage people from joining in. The, the interesting way is that he does it through culture. So he writes a philosophical treatise against uh, um, against Christianity, which is called against the Galileans, because he's also trying to undermine Christianity's claims to being the universal religion by saying, no, look, you come from a specific region that of Galilee, you are a sect, you are nothing more than a sect. Um, and you also, I mean, probably also that is a debated point. He, he tries to, he issues a sort of school ban in which he tries to prevent Christian professors from teaching the classics, but this goes back to what we were saying before that he doesn't want Christianity to to control uh, to control uh, traditional culture. So the question is: Is this tolerance or persecution? Uh, well, in if we frame this in this way, it's difficult to reply. Uh, but. What is certain is that Julian does not do what past emperors had done with the Christians. He, is, he, he does not initiate any form of centralized persecution, govern-led govern persecution. Um, so yeah. backfire. Yeah. It's interesting to think like how modern debates and concepts might not match up with the past, like the sort of, yeah, the dangers of being a bit anachoristic. Um, with the, I think it's really interesting what you're saying about how it's very much this his plan is being uh, driven through culture and cultural changes. Do we have any evidence to like how people at the time received these changes? Is he a pop? I know he's not on the throne for very um, he's not ruling for very long, but is he is he a popular ruler? Do we know? You probably not very much. Um, the moment of Julian's greatest popularity is when he. Um, so um, something interesting in his life is that uh, he reconquers Gaul because it's the early stage of his <laughs> political rise. He, as soon as he's appointed co-emperor or sort of subordinate emperor, of uh, he is sent to Gaul, uh, which at the time was being. Uh, um, say invaded if you want to use this term, but by um, Germanic uh, tribes, 
and he defeats them. So he restores the Roman government in the region. And at that point, he's extremely popular, um, which is the re- at least among his soldiers. So, which is the reason why they appoint him um, Augustus, which means um, that he is not anymore a subordinate emperor. He is a full emperor, let's say. Um, and this is something that uh, his co-emperor of the time finds very problematic. And so uh, that, that there's a fight. After, I mean, not quite a fight, but um, anyway, the, uh, after this moment, I would say that Julian's popularity will will decline over his year and a half uh, of sole, uh, sole emperorship. And this is evident uh, in the final months of his rule when he's based in the city of uh, Antioch, that was a Greek-speaking city in uh, in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey. Uh, and there he is really trying at this point, he has committed so, so much to being uh, perceived as a, a as a philosopher on the throne. And it just rubs the citizens of Antioch off in the wrong way. Uh, they begin to write, um, you know, um, sort of um, mocking uh, um, songs against him, against his long beard. Uh, probably they also complain because he sacrifices too much. And uh, um, so the, the end of Julian's life is not... He, he, has, he has lost his popularity. That's interesting. So do you think it's it's probably likely that even if he had lived, he he might have failed in his attempts to to stop the spread of Christianity? Because I, I found this uh this book when I was looking at this fiction book called The Dragon Waiting by John N. Ford, which is a, a sort of a, a fantasy alternate history. And it has the reign of Julian as the point of divergence. So it imagines a reality where he he doesn't die quite young he it's a long reign and he's successful in stopping the growth of Christianity and interestingly the characters refer to him as Julian the Wise um but I thought it was interesting this idea that do you think it could have gone either way in terms of the spread of Christianity or was this this plan to limit was it always going to fail like is there an alternate reality where Christianity wouldn't be the dominant religion as it is today uh, so Julian is the king of counterfactual history, really. I think I, I, I'd heard of that novel, even though I never read it. But I think there is more. There's a, there's a whole genre of counterfactual history with Julian uh, as a protagonist. Uh, I personally think that he would not have been successful, even if he had lived for, I don't know, 90 years. And the reason why I think that is that uh, there is a problem embedded in uh, um, in Julian's reform, or at least there's something that he fails to do. Um, and this is that probably the, the, the force of Christianity at that stage was that um, we, we, we have been speaking now of um, Christianity's cultural discourse. So how Christianity would speak to the elites. And we have been saying that in Constantine's effort and the efforts of other rulers after Constantine was that of presenting Christianity as very compatible with elite culture. But the point is that Christianity was also able to do the, the, the opposite thing. And it was very capable of... Uh, speaking to the people at this point, uh, the sort of consolatory or uh, um, uh, force. And, and he, he, in a sense, it has been argued that at the time of early Christianity, there is what Peter Brown, a famous historian, calls the invention of the poor. 
uh, what does he mean? It's, it's not that the poor didn't exist before, they always existed in history, but Christian priests, politicians, uh, bishops, uh, um, became, begin to incorporate them so much in their politics and the, the rhetoric, they make them visible. And in this way, they really mobilize a sort of uh, um, army in their support, the urban army. It is striking uh, um, to see how much popular resonance um, uh, religious disputes would have when Constantine summons the Council of Nicaea and decides that um, he needs a sort of firm reply on the question of a specific heresy that is Arianism. He does it also because the dispute over Arianism um, was causing uh, um, enormous trouble in the city of uh, Alexandria in Egypt because people were literally fighting over this, um, over this theological matter. So what I think was missing in Julian's reform was the sort of popular side or the capacity to appeal to the people, to speak to the people. He was invested essentially in the upper-class cultural discourse, uh, but he couldn't talk to everybody, which is also the reason why he was not popular with his own citizens at the end of his life, because they saw a philosopher on the throne and they didn't know what to do with that. That's very interesting, the idea of like being too closed off and the reforms that he was bringing, not, yeah, not improving or not making life any better for the the average ordinary person. Yeah. Um, I was very interested too in his name, so Julian the Apostate. And as you sort of really brilliantly described earlier, it's quite a negative uh, name. It's like the betrayer, the traitor. Um, and obviously this is a name that he's sort of been given within the Christian tradition because he's he's rejects Christianity, so he's called the Apostate. So it's kind of in a way, I don't know if you agree with me, but it's, it's kind of a name given to him by the winners of the debate. And I, it's interesting to maybe if he had succeeded, what his name would have been like. But I was this idea that names have power. And I was wondering whether you think that this name, Naomi of Julian, has come to dominate like perceptions of him. Are there things outside of the religious changes that he should be remembered for? Is it a slightly limiting name? Uh, oh yes, it is of course, and uh, I I always wonder. But I think that all scholars of Julian wonder if we should keep using it, using it or not. Um, I mean, in in academic writing, nobody really uses it, and we usually speak of you know Julian Emperor Julian Julian Augustus. Uh, but then when you are sort of uh, you know bringing Julian outside of the uh, of articles and monographs, it, 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 it is inevitable to call him in this way because it's how he's known, right? So if I just said, I'm going to talk about Emperor Julian, maybe people might be, who's that? Um, uh, but so what else Julian should be remembered for? Uh, I think his, um, his, uh, his imperial profile is absolutely extraordinary just in terms of what he writes as an emperor, his literature, um, there's, there hasn't been any other emperor in the history of Rome writing uh, in the way he does and um, exploring so many genres and making them, I mean, he he really personalizes them. And I, 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 don't, I don't also, I, mean, I might be wrong here, but I don't think there has been any other ruler afterwards 
uh, I mean, writing the same things, writing in the same way. John is sort of obsessed with autobiography, I mean, for obvious reasons, <laughs> but um, his autobiographical obsession leads him to do things like he writes a satire on himself and on his beard, the, the famous misopogon. So I don't know how many emperors in, in, in the history of any part of the world have written a satire on themselves. He writes a satire of the history of Rome, which is actually, a, I think, also simultaneously a sort of philosophical statement, but it's another, which is called The Caesars. Um, he writes, as I was saying, a philosophical treatise against Christianity. Um, he probably wrote poetry that was, was lost. Uh, he writes the only surviving, or maybe only existing, prose panegyric to a woman that uh, from, uh, from uh, Greco-Roman literature that is a, a panegyric appraised in honor of the Empress Eusebia. So he's the only one who does that. And uh, so he's really, he's an extraordinary author. That's really interesting. The one about uh, the satire about himself, I think like it was translated, the title's like the beard hater or something, yeah. which sounded, sounded brilliant. Um, yeah. To, to take a slightly different line of approach, I mean, Julian, he's in a historical figure, but he's one from you know thousands of years ago. And I imagine that studying someone like that, it could be quite hard to separate the real person from the myths and the perceptions that sort of spring up around them like I I know in your talk you're going to be looking at how he's um, like hated in the middle ages but he's really loved in the enlightenment and it's not a problem that's unique to classics but I'm I guess I'm interested if it's something you're especially aware of with classics because you are going back so far like can we ever get close to the real Julian? That's uh, I mean, the the, the I imagine the, the the answer must uh, must probably remain open here. We, we can we can try to understand him better. I don't know if it's ever possible to. Um, I mean, this reminds me of what we were saying before on uh, um anachronistic statements, and there is a part of me who thinks. I mean, I ask myself if it's ever possible. Uh, uh, not to be anachronistic in the sense that we are always importing uh, uh, in uh, in texts from the past, uh, in realities from the past, you know, what, um, uh, our, our worldview and the way we filter things. Um, but I think that maybe in the case of Julian, we have an advantage point, uh, perhaps a slight one, I don't know, that there is so much contemporary evidence in the sense we don't only have... Uh, know um the history of the reception of julian or later fiction on julian we have a lot of that too um but we have julian's own writings and then um this other uh, very important uh, piece of evidence let's say is the most famous um work of historiography from the fourth century so from julian's time by amianus uh, amianus marcellinus uh, amianus marcellinus is a key historian of the time and he's also a sort of biographer of Julian in a sense, whom he knew personally because he was a soldier under Julian. So he saw him, he saw him do, uh, you know, um, lead the army or do politics. And he tried to be reliable as much as he could, sometimes even criticizing Julian, even if he admired him at the same time. Uh, so, and and then there is other, uh, other contemporary evidence. <laughs> It's it's a bit of a patchwork, but I think that with Julian we can do a better work than with other uh, with other figures. It must be interesting to like taking a figure who seems to attract a lot of attention. Like we've talked about how as history as history passes, 
he's been viewed differently. I guess it also must be quite interesting then trying to like sort of put that to one side and look at what the evidence is actually um, telling you about them. Yes. I, yeah. I mean, I think just as a side note, maybe um, I mean, speaking of his reception in the Middle Ages and in the Enlightenment in this respect, uh, um, if you think that the Enlightenment really loved uh, Julian because um, mm, uh, because they saw him as somebody op- uh, opposing uh, uh, Christianity and uh, uh, in, in defense of philosophy, therefore rationality. But what we were saying before is, what does it mean to be a philosopher in Julian's times? And Julian... Uh, it, is as committed uh, to religion as any Christian theologian of his time. So he thinks of himself as prophet of Apollo and uh, son of Helios, among other things. <laughs> so, yeah. It's... Yeah, while, while we're talking about, um, like, conventional reception of, of, of Julian, how he's been seen, I know that in the, this is something you're going to touch on in your talk, so we might not want to go into, like, loads of detail, but you're going to be challenging sort of a conventional reading that's seen him as a figure of sort of towering isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering if you could maybe like just expand a little bit on that, because that seemed really interesting. Of course. I mean, in a sense, I already um, w- w- went through my point, because what I mean is that um, because Julian is so unique in the way he writes, uh, in the fact that uh, he comes to, um, to, to to be the last pagan emperor, he tries to resist against something that uh, um, we, we, we tend to see him as uh, an, an exceptional figure, which he was. But he was simultaneously, and this is the, the, this is my point. Uh, he was simulta- simultaneously a, a very alert and careful reader of his times. Like his point is precisely that of say, I mean, why does he um, commit so much to his idea of uh, to his idea of being a philosopher on the throne? It's not because he's trying to you know revive. Uh, a mythical archetype uh, in a time in which nobody was interested in philosophy. It is precisely because his close predecessors had sort of been trying to do the same, but from the viewpoint, from the angle of Christianity. So they said that Christianity, as I was saying at the start of the, the interview, in fact, dominated the the Greco-Roman cultural landscape. So I think we should stop seeing Julian. I mean, this is my <laughs> in this way I make it sound like a plea. This is the, the, the argument of my book. Uh, I think that Julian is not somebody who lived in a world of his own and who wanted to be like Plato. I think that Julian is very much connected with uh, what politics is saying in his days. Yeah, thank you. Um, and again, I, I hope that people can maybe come along to your talk and hear you talk more about this because it sounds so interesting. Um, we've talked a little bit, we've touched on a little bit how Julian is this amazing writer and he produces these texts, some of which we still have today, and that it really displays his, his skill as a writer, which I, in a way, it's kind of fitting then that he seems to have been a very, uh, a very popular, a recurring figure in the public imagination, especially in terms of literature. You've talked about Gore Vidal's um, Julian. Um, he also features in Elizabeth Finch by Julian Barnes. One of my favourite poets, actually, who I didn't know, C.P. C. Cavafy, wrote six poems about him, the Greek the Greek poet who I love. Um, but I was just interesting. Why do you think that Julian has this hold on liter- literary imagination, but also popular culture? It does seem quite fitting that someone who was so interested and invested in culture has had, in turn, quite a big impact on literary culture 
Ah, that is true. I hadn't, uh, I, I hadn't thought of it that in a sense because um, Julian's world was was culture. Then it is culture that sort of received him and kept. So I think, um, I mean, Julian is sort of turned uh, into a mythical figure, not just uh, by, I mean, because of what he has done, but by his own oppon opponents. Um, and that's part of a sort of a strategy of reassertion of um, Christian power after Julian, in the sense that they need to, um, Julian dies very young, we were saying, because he dies in a, in a military campaign fighting against the Iranians, the the, the the Persians. Um, and this is um, uh, something that is used by his detractors uh, to say that he um, was God's example, uh, that you should not be doing what he had done, that God had, had in a sense, um, punished him and turned him into a sort of um, exemplary figure, but in the negative, I think. Um, and for this reason, uh, ironically, the Christian themselves later were, um, were interested in preserving his memory and his work and speaking of him more and more and more and more because he served as a reminder of where you should not be going. So um, this, this is one of the reasons why his, his figure has acquired this sort of uh, um, mythical uh, uh, status. Uh, and, and afterwards, of course, as, uh, as the cultural discourse in Western modernity changed then, um, he has he has become, I mean, something, um, someone serving uh, uh, so many different uh, um, uh, purposes. Uh, maybe I suppose that for now, he also uh, represents, uh, I mean, he embodies a fantasy that of uh, being a young, young emperor who decides to go against the tide of history, also to, to declare who he is in a world in which that has become a problematic statement uh, and just uh, commit entirely to his beliefs. So I think that this um, moves very much uh, the sort of... Uh, um, the, 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 the romantic side intended of uh, the, the, the fascination for the heroic in, uh, um, <laughs> in many people. Yeah, I guess literature also, I feel like literature quite likes a tragic figure as well. And I feel like yes. there's something quite tragic that like the unrealized, um, like the, the sort of the last line that gets attributed to him that I'm sure we can't say whether he actually said it, where he's like, looking at the heavens and he's like you've won um I guess that idea of like you say a young person who yeah has this great plan and it, it doesn't it doesn't work is quite alluring maybe from a uh, an author's point of view um, um, of course of course so I mean you're right there's the sense of tragic uh, maybe better than heroic as I was saying before but the rise and downfall I just wanted to say though that in respect to Cavafy's poems uh, that you were mentioning before um it, uh, actually, Cavafy is one of the few contemporary authors uh, who don't buy into the <laughs> into the Julian myth. Yeah, because uh, I think Cavafy doesn't like Julian's religious commitment. He sees it uh, and he thinks that Julian is simply um, replacing uh, a form of normative religious discourse uh, uh, with another one. So he's actually quite sarcastic. <laughs> on, on well, that's Julian. that's interesting that like he. Yeah, and also like being a Greek poet as well. I think that's that's an interesting perspective too. Um, just to sort of um, bring our discussion to a close, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, classics. So in, in recent years, there's been like a big push to sort of defend classics as a study, sort of emphasizing um, its accessibility, but also 
the value of of classics in in the modern age. I think Mary Beard, the well-known classicist, who also like until recently was teaching at Cambridge, has done I think a lot to sort of um, widen people's awareness of the classics. So my question kind of has as two parts. Um, why does the study of classics matter to you? Which I know is like a huge question. Um, but more specifically, and linking back to Julian, are there any ways in which like a study of Julian is relevant to us today? Can it inform on society today? I mean, just off the top of my head, issues of religious tolerance, freedom, they're still big pressure points. Um, this idea of like the state and religion, should we have like an established, you know, just within England, I'm just thinking of like the census that came out recently showing like the Church of England is no longer like the dominant religion. So I'm just like, why should listeners be interested and care about Julian? If that makes sense. Oh uh, yes, of course. I just this is a huge question. So yeah, sorry, I'm just to end on a huge one. So I hope I will make. Uh, I'm not sure I make justice to either, but I, I'll try. Well, classics and uh, um, making classics accessible. Uh, um, the, the, the subject, the uh, the subject that studies um, the the Greek, the ancient Greek and the ancient Roman world. Uh, um, yes, it, it's it, it's a huge one in the sense, um, not just because of the sheer amount of material that we have available in the sense that there is just um, so much literature that has survived um, compared also to, to, to other cultures, unfortunately. So we can reconstruct so much of this world. But also, um, I guess that because of the way it has then influenced for historical reasons, uh, um, um, yes, the, the, the history of Western modernity, it has activated so much discussion, so much conversations, it has become entangled with uh, um, so many um, reflections um, for, 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 for better or for worse, I mean, e either way. So the point is really, I mean, I think we have reached the point in which um, we, we are really trying together, uh, trying to to think together on. Uh, um, I mean, what, um, how how can classics uh, speak to the to the contemporary world? How can uh, um, we um, um, remind it, uh, ourselves of the uh, you know the way in which it has been manipulated, but also the ways in which this this historical and cultural subject has to offer to um, I think to um, I mean to anybody. It's a, um, it's a fascinating, uh, uh, really, uh, um, I mean, what, what I personally find so fascinating of classics, I mean, of, of, of this world, uh, is how different and how similar simultaneously can be uh, to, to us. Uh, because sometimes we we connect, um, we read something from Homer, from Plato, or any other. We 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 connect so incredibly um, with it, and then we are reminded of of all the uh, all the things that are in fact uh, incompatible with uh, with with us, with our, our values. Just think of you know, <laughs> slavery was was a normal thing for the for the Greeks and the Romans, sort of, um, or even just what we were saying before on the fact that uh, religious tolerance were, was really not <laughs> on top of their list of priorities. So uh, I think it's this mechanism of seeing what's similar, what's different that sparks so much thinking. And Julian is um, uh, is he offers a lot of food for thought. I think for a variety of um, 
of, of crucial contemporary issues, uh, I mean, some of which we, 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 we touched upon today. I think from the relationship between culture and power, for me, is the, uh, is the, is the key one, culture and politics, but also culture and religion and uh, religion and power, he sort of creates a triangulation of this, this, these three things. Um, and uh, yes, um, I mean, tolerance, as we were saying. So. That's a really interesting way, actually, of, of thinking about the past in that rather than trying to like make the past fit the present, actually looking at the ways in which they differ and that sparking um, interesting debate. Um, is that so that's really interesting is there anything at all that you would like to add that um, we haven't covered that you think you would like to bring uh, uh no i think i i, I think we had uh yes <laughs> would just say you read julian <laughs> yeah we julian yeah um thank you so much leah that was really fascinating um you can find further details of leah's talk on the cambridge festival website including booking details um make sure to follow the cambridge festival on facebook twitter instagram and youtube for more fascinating events and follow the say that again slowly podcast for more conversations with this year's experts on the theme of power in all its forms thanks for listening